Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Right, first of all this week, a little bit of uh, housekeeping. Now, we're in the middle of uh, talking about the Ottonians, and I had promised that I'd do another daily life lesson, but that is coming. I've got this episode, another on the Ottonians, the recap, and then we're going to do the daily life episode. So bear with me, and apologies for the delay, it's just these Ottonians are a bit more interesting than initially I'd thought. So at the end of the last episode, we mourned for the death of Otto I of Germany and said that we would see how his son, Otto II, got on. Well, from the very start, not too well at all. We don't see him coming down to Italy for seven years after his father's death because, first of all, he had to sort out things in Germany with the German nobles, in particular Henry of Bavaria, and the French king Lothar was also getting a bit pesky. However, Otto had set up a system of medieval distance working which could function through the Missi, the imperial representatives, and things had been set in motion that were running along relatively nicely, more or less. So, let's take yet another trip down the peninsula, with many still to come, and we'll see what was going on in Ottonian Italy. Let's start with a place that we haven't spoken about that much, and that is Venice. Before we start, let me just remind you that Benjamin Ashwell from Talking History, the Italian Unification podcast, has a mini-series on Venice that I really recommend that you check out. We're heading there first, not because it's the furthest north, so the first on our way over the Alps, but because it takes us back a little bit in time. We've said before that Venice was initially a Byzantine possession that neither the Lombards nor Charlemagne had taken over. In time, it had become increasingly independent and its duke had become Doge. By this time, we can actually speak of a Republic of Venice, although we cannot for a moment imagine a modern republic with universal suffrage, not even universal male suffrage. It was, in truth, an oligarchy. Venice had come into the Ottonian sphere of influence when in 966 the Doge, Peter IV, married a relative of Otto's. A series of commercial agreements followed, in particular with Pietro and his family. This closeness to the Western Empire did not please the Byzantines in the slightest, since by this time Venice had grown in power to control the trade routes between East and West. Pietro had demonstrated just how far from being a republic the Republic of Venice actually was, with a strong autocratic rule that did not please the Venetians. However, Otto I's military protection kept him in power. Then, in 973, Otto I died, and while his son Otto II was busy putting down rebellions in Germany, the Venetian opposition saw their chance and also rebelled. They trapped Doge Pietro IV 
and his son of the same name in the Dodge's palace, and then set fire to the building. The fire then spread to St. Mark's Basilica and destroyed a good part of the city and killed the Dodge and his son. Peter IV's youngest son, Vitale Candiano, managed to escape to the court of Otto II to start plotting his revenge. Meanwhile, the opposition set up another Dodge. I'll bet you never guessed what his name was. That's right, Pietro, specifically Pietro Orseolo. He tried to appease the empire, the western one, but they weren't having it. So, in a rather unusual, peaceful turn of events, Dodge Pietro I Orseolo abdicated and became a monk. So you can forget about him if you want. He must have seen how many rulers in Italy ended up in those times. The pro-Ottonian Vitale was now back in power. It must have been a really tough job because he too decided to abdicate and become a monk. With the position vacant, it was once again the turn of the pro-Byzantines with Tribuno Memmo. With the pro-Byzantine Doge in place, Otto II was a little reluctant to renew the commercial agreements with the city that his father had made. But Mummy, Adelaide of Italy, convinced him. Something like, Otto, clean up your room and then go and renew the commercial agreements with the Republic of Venice, you naughty little emperor or no dessert. The situation of tranquility did not last long at all because in 980, fighting erupted between the pro-Ottonian Coloprini family and the pro-Byzantine Morosini family. The former appealed to Otto for help and it is around this time in 981 that he finally made his descent into Italy. To close off with Venice, he tried a couple of embargoes in 981 and a more effective one in 983 but he didn't make too much progress in the end. This little section on Venice may have just been a confusing whirlwind of names, so just remember that in this period, among all the other headaches that Otto had, he also had Venice with its alternating pro-Ottonian and pro-Byzantine factions. Next, we'll jump back all the way down to the south to see our old mate Pandolfo Ironhead. At the start of Otto II's reign, he was at the top of his game. He was sitting pretty. You will remember that he was the Prince of Benevento and Capua, as well as the Duke of Spoleto. Then, in 974, Duke Gisulf, or Gisulf of Salerno, that would be Gisulfo in Italian, was overthrown, and Pandolfo helped him to get back into power. In exchange, Pandolfo was nominated heir of Gisulf, who promptly died in the same year, and so Pandolfo Ironhead ruled all the way from Ancona, halfway down the boot on the eastern side, to Calabria, the toe of the boot. Unfortunately, this only lasted as long as Pandolfo himself did. With his death in 981, it all fell apart. The first to declare independence was the Principality of Benevento, followed then by a rebellion in Salerno, 
possibly thanks to the prodding of Duke Sergius III of Amalfi and the usual interfering Byzantines. In other words, southern Italy was a big mess once again after the death of Pandolfo Ironhead. We will miss him. One of the other headaches for Otto was the Pope situation yet again. It seems to be getting a bit repetitive here. So, where were we with all these confusing popes? Well, Otto I had put Benedict VI on the papal throne. But as soon as the Romans heard that Otto had died, they overthrew Benedict and imprisoned him, putting Boniface VII in his place. When the Romans then heard that Otto II intended to have Benedict VI back on the throne, they solved the problem by having him killed. In the end, the imperial envoy managed to get rid of Boniface VII and put another Benedict, the seventh, in his place. While the first of these Benedicts, the sixth, had been of German origin, this one, the seventh, was Italian, but tied to the German court. If you consider that the most recent Benedict, the sixteenth, was also German, we can conclude that the Germans really loved their Benedicts. Anyway, for the moment at least, the Holy Roman Emperor had his man as Pope. But it was time to sort out the rival factions in Rome, in particular the Crescenzi family, who had married into the powerful Tuscolo family of our old friend Theophylact, Marozia's father. If you haven't a clue who I'm talking about, you might want to go back and listen to episodes 21 and 22. In any case, Otto found a very diplomatic way of dealing with the anti-imperial Roman faction. He entered the city on the 27th of March, 981, not with an army, but with his family, including his mother, his wife, his sister and other family members. That must have seemed harmless enough to the opposing Roman nobles. On Easter Sunday, he even invited them all to a banquet, and after a lovely meal, when it came time for the fruit, he had them all strangled. How lovely! The leader of the faction, Crescenzo Tuscolo, managed to escape by hiding under a friar's tunic. That's all I have. I don't know if the friar was actually wearing the tunic at the time, but anyway... Now, I must point out that I'm using around five different sources for this period and only one of them recounts this whole strangling affair. However, it is the most recent and I would consider the most prestigious since it is by Indro Montanelli, a distinguished Italian historian and journalist whose edition I have is very recent. Indeed, it's so prestigious I think it's about the fourth or fifth edition of the same collection. Whatever the case may be, it makes for a better story. While he was at it, Otto also participated in a few church councils to try and curb the violence that stemmed from the desire of various players to control the great riches that the church had accumulated. Now it was finally time for Otto II of Germany, Holy Roman Emperor, to turn his attention back to the issue of uniting all of the Italian peninsula under his crown. Something that his marriage to the Byzantine princess Theophania, or Theophanu, 
hadn't helped. As we mentioned before, Otto the First, old buddy Pandolfo Ironhead, was no longer in the picture by now, and his unified control over almost all of southern and a part of central Italy had splintered again. However, Otto the Second was able to work with the pieces, getting another Pandolfo, nephew of the Ironhead, a new Lord of Benevento on his side, as well as. Mansone of Salerno, who was actually co-regent with yet another Pandolfo, this time the son of the Ironhead. Again, don't worry too much about the names. Just know that Otto II was able to piece together an alliance of northern and southern Italian nobles. Having thus collected the pieces of Pandolfo Ironhead's reign, Otto could now turn his attention to the main enemy in the area, the Byzantine Empire. Now the Byzantines saw that Otto meant business, and that they probably couldn't face the German-Italian alliance alone. So they turned to the other major player in the area, their frequent enemy, the Emirate of Sicily. So it came about that the Emir of Sicily, Abu Qasim Ali, found himself in mid-July of 982 near Rossano in Calabria. When he decided that the Allied German and Italian force he had come to fight was unexpectedly larger than he had thought, and he decided to retreat rather than face destruction. Unfortunately, as we know, Italy is a peninsula, and sooner or later, unless you're heading north, you will reach the sea. When the Arabs realized that they could not escape, they turned to face the enemy. When Otto the Second. Heard of the retreat, he left his family and treasure and headed off to chase the Arabs. The exact location of the ensuing battle is up for debate. It was either at Capocolonna, south of Crotone in Calabria, or, according to others, further south between the town of Stilo and the sea. Wherever it may have been, the battle started well for the Imperial Alliance. The heavy German cavalry crashed violently into the Muslim center, breaking through and making it all the way to Abu Qasim Ali's personal guard. And when they arrived that far, their momentum took them forward, sweeping through the guard and all the way to the commander and Emir of Sicily himself. He was killed in the ensuing fighting, and at this point, one would imagine that with their commander dead. The Arab troops would start to fall apart, to retreat from the battlefield, and then to become sitting ducks for the German cavalry. That was not the case. The Arab forces managed to regroup despite the death of their supreme commander and enclosed the Allied cavalry in a pincer move, and that's when the slaughter began. It is estimated that up to four thousand German and Italian troops were killed. Emperor Otto himself barely managed to escape. Some sources speak of him managing to get onto a ship and then having to make a daring escape from the ship by jumping overboard and swimming to shore when he caught wind of the crew's intention to turn him over to the enemy. In any case, the battle was a disaster. Its echoes resounded all over Europe. 
Otto managed to make his way up the Italian peninsula, seeking refuge with his vassals, until he reached Verona. There, he knew he had to make some serious diplomatic repairs. So there, in Verona, he called an assembly of the most important northern Italian nobles to guarantee that his son, the future Otto the Third, would be crowned king. He also sent for reinforcements. The consequences for southern Italy were also ground-shaking. Many nobles, such as Landolfo the Fourth of Salerno, and his brother Pandolfo, died in the battle, and the rule of Capua and Benevento. Passed on to second lines of succession. Basically, this one battle once again changed the whole political situation in the south of the peninsula. Meanwhile, it was time yet again to go back to Rome because Benedict the Seventh had died on the tenth of July, nine eighty-three. In his place, Otto put the Bishop of Pavia and Arch Chancellor of the Empire. Pietro Canepanova, with the name, would you believe it, of John the Fourteenth, Giovanni Fourteenth. Otto the Second then set to getting all the other aspects of his empire under control after the disaster, but then, very suddenly, on the seventh of December, nine eighty-three, at the age of only twenty-eight, Otto the Second, King of Germany, King of Italy, and Holy Roman Emperor. Died. His body was placed in a beautiful sarcophagus that was put in the Vatican caves, where it stayed until the early 1600s, when Pope Paul V had him exhumed and his ashes put in a marble urn. He then gave the sarcophagus to his favorite cook, who made a boiling pot out of it. So people may have literally been having. Ottonian soup. That's a few hundred years in the future. For now, the heir to the Holy Roman Empire, to Germany and to Italy, was a four-year-old boy. So it was time for a good old regency in the hands of Empress Theophania. We'll see how she got on next time. For the moment, thanks to everyone as always for listening. Thanks to our regular Patreon donors: Sen, Sean, Roberta, Shelby, and a new great honor, a new Patreon donor, Benjamin Ashwell from the Talking History podcast. For me, it's a bit like having a passion for golf, not being very good at it, but at the same time having Tiger Woods supporting you. So thank you very, very much to Benjamin. If you want to get in touch with comments, questions, or just for a chat, you can drop an email: hello at ahistoryofitaly dot com. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly dot com, you find our website with timelines, pictures, and maps to help you navigate our complicated history. Until next time, thanks very much again for listening, and arrivederci.
Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.